The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. 2 Peter chapter 3 in your Bible. I ask you to open to that place. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God, let me encourage you to read or reach into the rack in front of you this morning. There's some that have been provided for you. And find 2 Peter. Those of you that have been here through this journey know we come to the end of our study of this book. It's hard to believe that uh, three months have gone by, but I do need to say to you uh, this morning how grateful I am uh, to, to you as a people of faith for inviting me into your worship and uh, your ministry. Uh, you have blessed me, you have encouraged me, uh, and I've just absolutely looked forward uh, every week uh, to coming and uh, preaching you. I told your pastor this morning uh, just uh, how well you have been trained uh, and how he has nurtured you in the word and how evident that is to someone that comes in uh, as a guest. And so I've been blessed. Thank you for that, um, that privilege. Second Peter chapter three, I wanna read God's word over you, beginning with verse 11. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? It's the question I want you to have in your mind this morning. As a result of everything that we've studied in this book, everything we've seen specifically, everything related to the certainty that Jesus is coming back, he's coming back for his people, he's coming back to judge the wicked. Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That's what he's referring to at the beginning of verse 11 when he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's already said it in verse 10. The Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works are done on it will be exposed. He said it in verse 7, the same word, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exists are stored up for fire. Peter says, as we're waiting for that to happen... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we as believers are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. 
as they do with the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. When I first started pastoring, I didn't know much, still don't know a lot, but knew a lot less then. Some of the, some of the things that I, I ran across and encountered as a young pastor, I could, could confidently say, as I've heard many students that I've taught say, well, they didn't teach me that in seminary. One of those things was how to do a wedding rehearsal. I may have been taught how to do a wedding, but nobody ever walked me through that rehearsal thing. So I remember the first few rehearsals that I did. Um, you know, the only thing I knew is, okay, well, everybody get, you know, in place, the wedding party, go back to the back. When the move music strikes up, then, you know, start marching in. And so that's what we did. And, and immediately I, I discovered that that was chaos. I mean, uh, you know, no, nobody kind of knew the pace and they were in different spaces and they were walking at different, you know, rates coming in. And, but, but, but the biggest thing is when they, they got up to the stage, it, it kind of with confused looks would just start trying to figure out where they're supposed to be. They'd look at me as if I was going to tell them, you know, where to go or look at one another. And, and, and I realized that that they didn't know where they were going to wind up. And consequently, it affected how they marched in. The seasoned pastor pulled me aside one time and he said, hey, why don't you, why don't you start by showing them where they're going to end up? And so I did. I started doing wedding rehearsals where I brought everybody up on the stage the first thing and we put tape on the floor, you know, where each uh, bridesmaid and groomsman was going to stand. And then I said, all right, now go back and let's play the music and you guys march in. Totally different. People came in with confidence. They'd mount the stage. They knew exactly where they were supposed to go. And I was reminded, I was reminded that knowing where you're going to end up affects the way that you get there. Knowing where your piece of tape is on the floor in a wedding rehearsal, if you're in a wedding party, will determine how you march in. I think Peter comes to the end of this book and he says the same thing. He says, since you know where your piece of tape is, you know what your destination is, then let, let that affect the way that you march in. The reformers on whose shoulders we stand this morning, who we're grateful for as we celebrate this 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, they knew this. John Calvin said this, and listen very carefully to this first statement, especially believers, in order to encourage themselves to a holy and upright conduct, ought to contemplate with the eyes of faith the heavenly life, which though it is now concealed, will be revealed at the last coming of Christ. See what he says? In order to encourage themselves to a holy and upright conduct, well, you, ought, you ought to think about your destination. You ought to think about what's coming. Believers, he said, ought to do a couple of things. Number one, they ought not to think their lives 
too hard, even if it's mixed with the wicked who annoy or attack them. You think Calvin had read 2 Peter? We've been talking about that. False teachers and their influence and their sway and the effect that they can have on the body of Christ. Calvin said, number two, believers should watch out that they are not infected with the vices of the wicked. Peter says that. Don't be swayed by me. He says it in this passage of scripture. We'll see it in, in just a moment. And, and believers should, Calvin says, number three, they need to know their holiness and work is not wasted. Christ doesn't give the kingdom to them as if they earned it, but as an inheritance is given to heirs. This preparation makes our salvation, listen, certain. Peter talks about that makes it certain and encourages us to persevere in hope. Now, when Calvin said those words, when he wrote that, he wasn't talking about 2 Peter. He was actually talking about Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks of the, the judgment of the uh, separating the sheep and the goat. But the principles are the same. The truths are the same. Peter's talked about all of these things. Knowing where your piece of tape is, knowing where your destination is, ought to affect the way you march in. So Peter makes three applications to help us understand that. We haven't seen a ton of application in this book. Uh, I pointed out to you in chapter two, there's nothing there where Peter's saying, do this or don't do that. He's just telling us about these false teachers and their, their nature. And so he hasn't said a ton about this, but he comes to this place right here. He comes to the end of chapter three and, and he makes his application. Three applications for how we need to march in in light of where we're going. You see how he sets this up. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and interestingly uses that waiting word waiting three times, once in verse 12, once in verse 13, once in verse 14. Verse 12 says, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Verse 13, according to this promise, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens. Verse 14, since you are waiting for these, Peter is, 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 is talking to us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what we are to be doing right now while we wait for Jesus to come. In the language of the New Testament, this word waiting indicates anticipation, sitting on the edge of your feet, seat, but, but it's not a passive waiting. You know, I hear people all the time, you know, say, well, you know, we're, we got this decision to make. We're just waiting on God. Basically, that means we're not doing anything. Waiting on God in scripture is never a passive thing. It is an active thing. In fact, the word used for it in the Old Testament is the same word that's used for a woman in labor. Ladies, you know, that is not a passive event. Peter says, while you're, you're waiting, here's what you need to be doing. Three applications. Number one, be godly. Be godly. Peter first talks about this as our response to knowing what is going to happen. So here we are. We see it in 1 Peter. We see it in other places of Scripture. We're sitting on the edge of our seat. We're waiting for Jesus to come. We intend, and and we, are, we are acting in a way that is a response to what we know is going to happen. 
We know that he's coming back. We know he's going to wreck this place when he does. We know that he's going to preserve the righteous and we know that he's going to judge the wicked. We know all of this and the physical part is going to be dissolved and it's going to be burned up. Peter says the natural response for Christians to that is practical righteousness. Now let me show it to you in this text. Look at it in verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be while you're waiting? And he tells us, in lives of holiness and godliness. You see a similar thing in verse 14. Since you are waiting for these, here's what you need to do. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What Peter's talking about is how we live our lives. He's talking about conduct. He's talking about morality. Now, I want you to notice that this is, this is what some of the people you talk to, your, your, your friends that don't know Christ, so you have spiritual conversation, and, he, and, and they may say to you, that's all you Christians do. You just have a bunch of rules. Man, you just got things you can't do and you know, things you have to do. And you got Christianity is just a bunch of rules. Well, we got rules. We have commandments. We've got imperatives. We've got things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do. But we don't do them in order to earn God's favor and get into heaven. We do them because we know what is going to happen. We know what's coming. So our response is practical righteousness. And so I want to ask you this morning in a holy assembly like this, as we've walked through this together and we've been reminded about the coming of Christ, as you look into your life this morning, does it reflect practical righteousness? Is it being played out in your life? In morality, in holiness, in godliness, without spot or blemish, he says there in verse 14. And notice at the end of verse 14, and at peace. He's simply talking about the, he's talking about the appearance of what happens when Jesus comes back. Are you living your life in such a way that if he came back right now, it would be clear that you're on his side and he's on your side. You're at peace with him. Because you see, when he comes back, he, he won't manifest himself as being at peace with those who have rejected him. He's coming to judge. But, but Peter tells Christians, you know, you, it ought not to be that way for you. You know, you know he's already talked about this back over in chapter 1. You remember in chapter one, after he said, you know, God's power has granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness. That's in verse three. Then in verse five, he said, for this very reason, because God's given this to you, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Why? Because he's telling us as these qualities are increasing, then it, it produces more evidence that you are really saved. You are really a child of God. And then notice verse 11 there in chapter one. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is just another way of saying, be at peace when Jesus comes. Let it be a smooth transition into his kingdom. Not one in which you're surprised by it. 
Not one in which you're embarrassed by the way that you're living your life as a believer when he comes. Not one that, that gives an indication that you're not even on his side. So Peter says, this is our response. It's natural, excuse me, not natural, practical righteousness in our lives. What is it in your life today that doesn't fit into that category? You profess Christ. What is it that doesn't fit into the category of holiness and godliness and, and, and being without spot and blemish? What is it that doesn't give an indication that you are at peace with your Savior? Peter's saying, make your response practical righteousness. But although that is our response, Peter doesn't leave it there. He, he, he doesn't indicate that that's that's our primary motivation. You know, we're sitting on the edge of our seat. We're waiting for him to come back. And we, we know when he comes back, he's going to wreck this universe. Descriptions of it all over this passage of scripture. And we know that he's going to bring judgment. He's, he's talked about that in this book. He's going to judge those who, who are his enemies. We know all of that. And we're sitting on the edge of our seat. But Peter says, knowing that, that that's not your primary motivation for living righteously. So he gives us our reason for living righteously and being godly in verse 13. And you know what that reason is? The reason is because we're headed for perfect righteousness. We're headed for perfect. We, we, right now, we can't experience that. By the grace of God, we're, we're, we're doing the best that we can to live righteously. He's given us all things that are necessary for that. But we, as long as we live in these fleshly bodies, they're going to constantly be pulling us away. And so it's not perfect righteousness. But you know what Peter says? Peter says, the reason you live righteously now is because that's what you're headed for in eternity. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise... We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, he's just got through saying again that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and heavenly bodies will be melted. He says, but based on his promise, we're waiting for a new heaven, new earth. But look at this, in which righteousness dwells. He says, this, this is the reason we we live righteously now. It's not because we're earning our way into heaven. Jesus did that for us. It's why he came and lived a life we can't live. He died a death we, we should have died. He rose from the dead to put God's life back inside of us. He incurred God's wrath on our back. He's done all of that for us. And he has made us righteous he, because he's given us his right. So we don't live righteous to earn our way. We don't even live righteously now because we know judgment is coming. You know, I, I, I meet Christians that seem to be still living with that motivation. They think if they step out of line, God's going to whack them. You know? He's going to spank them. He's going to punish them. He's going to bop them. Certainly God disciplines his children. But beloved, listen, Jesus did that for us. He took our place and incurred the wrath of God. We don't live righteously now because we know Jesus is coming back and he's going to wreck this place and he's going to bring judgment because our judgment has already been taken care of. That's why Jesus went to the cross. 
So why do we sit on the edge of our seat in anticipation and live with practical righteousness now? Why, why do we live holy? Why do we? Because we know that he is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. But this time, this time it's going to be a heaven and an earth in which righteousness dwells. And Peter says, that's why you live righteously. Because you are a citizen of that kingdom and you have that hope and that's what you're headed for. So he says, start living like it now. Start living like it now. You know what he's referring to? He's, he's referring to closing the loop in the Bible. The loop in the Bible was opened in, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. The book of Genesis begins, God creates heaven and earth Verse 26 of chapter 1, he, in verse 26 and 27, he makes mankind, male and female, in his image. And then in chapter 3, all that gets messed up because sin enters the world. And don't throw stones at Adam and Eve. If it hadn't have been them, it would have been you or me or, you know, it, 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 sin entered the world. And it separated us from God. And God's creation was perverted. His creation and his creatures were perverted. And the entire story of this Bible is, is the story of God fixing that. And the way he did it was send his son to live a life we couldn't live and die a death we should have died defeated the death, defeated death and the grave, rose from it in order to put God's life, his image back inside of us. And right now we live in anticipation of a day when all of that is going to be brought to fruition. It is going to be done fully. And that includes the recreation of heaven and earth. But this time, Peter reminds us, it's not going to be one characterized by the things that we deal with in this world. It's going to be one in which righteousness dwells. Let me show it to you. The closing of that loop is in Revelation 21 and 22. I know many of you are familiar with the story. Just go over to the end of your Bible and back up a couple of pages. Revelation 21. A sweet sound, Pastor Jeff, turning of those pages. Thank you for engaging God's word like you do. Verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Peter describes that, doesn't he? It's more vivid terms. <laughs> Be dissolved, burn up. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We sang about it a moment ago. We are his bride, the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him as their God. Listen to me, watch this, look up here. That is describing where righteousness dwells. Why? Because God's there. And wherever God is, there's righteousness. 
and what heaven is going to look like while there are so many unanswered questions we have and we don't have all of the details. What we know is this. God is going to be with us. We're going to be with God. And wherever God is, the atmosphere is righteousness. And this is what Peter says. This is why you live righteously. This is why we confess our sins and we repent of them. This is why we don't buy into what the world does. And and this is why we have some things we do and some things we don't do. Because this is our destiny. Look at verse 4 in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Don't you look forward to that? Don't you look forward to being in a place where righteousness is the order of the day? And none of these things that we deal with and experience in life are pulling us away from that. Peter says that is, that's the reason we live righteously now because we are headed for a world of perfect righteousness. So Peter says, be godly. Secondly, he says, seize the day. Seize the day. Take advantage of the time. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, Peter here makes an exhortation to believers, okay? He's talking, again, we know this, to Christians, but here he exhorts us to a particular thing. And that thing is, he says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, that ought to sound a little bit familiar to it because he's, he's just got through talking. We preached on it last week. We just got through talking about, about the patience of the Lord, why he is delaying his coming. Why it's now been 2,000 plus years since Jesus left the earth the first time and, and, and told us he was coming back. Remember, he, he tells us back up there in verse 9, the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Why is he tearing? Well, at least in part, because he is, he is wooing, he is pleading, he's providing time for people who don't know Christ to repent and come to him. He's being patient. Anytime a crowd this size is gathered, there's no doubt there's some in here that need to hear that because you've never trusted Christ. You've you've never repented of your sins. You've never depended on Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And and, and that that is a word there in verse 9 for you to know that the reason that Jesus is tarrying is to give opportunity and provide chance. And I pray that if that's you, that today you will not presume upon the patience of our Lord. Paul says, don't do that. You'll not put it off any longer, but today will be the day you come to Jesus right there at your heart, at your seat, in your heart of hearts. You can change your mind about your sin, change your mind about Jesus, and trust him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's forgive your sins because he took your place on the cross. That, that's what he was saying back up there in verse 9, but, but Christians, when he comes to verse 15 right here, he says, look, You you need to look at the patience of our Lord, but you need to look at it a little bit differently. Because you have come to Christ and you've repented of your sins, you've trusted him, so you're not 
seeing the patience of the Lord from a personal standpoint here as, as wanting to call you to salvation because you're, you're there. So what does he says? Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. I think translated, he's simply saying, take advantage of this time to make your salvation everything it's supposed to be. Bible scholars differ or really admit that we don't have all the information that we'd like to have as far as exactly what Peter means here. Is he, is he talking about assurance of salvation like he has at other places in the book and actually like he will in, in, in just a, a couple of verses here yet at the end? Is, is he saying, use this time to live out practical right, righteousness, to give evidence that you're a true believer, to not be swayed by false teaching, to not let doubt enter in because you're not living like a Christian. So you're wondering, am I really a Christian? Peter's addressing all of that here. Is he, is he saying, take advantage of this time to be sure of your salvation. Is he talking here about the salvation of others? Is he saying to us as Christians, do everything you can during this season to tell as many people as you possibly can how to miss hell and make heaven, to tell them about Jesus. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Share it with your family. Share it with your schoolmate. Share it with people in your neighborhood. Get on planes and, and, and take mission trips and, and get the gospel to every pos possible person you can. Or, or is Peter, is Peter saying, take your salvation to a new level. Be extraordinary in your Christian life. Some of you remember the movie Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams played John Keating, um, who taught English in a, in, a, in, a, in a boys' school in 1959. And Keating's drive was to introduce them to poetry so that they would, they would be challenged and spurred on to extraordinary lives. You might remember the scene where he's standing with the boys staring into a trophy case in the lobby of the, the school. Uh, all schools have them. And there were trophies, but there were also pictures, pictures of classes that in previous years of men and women who now were dead. Food for worms, Keating tells them. That's what they become. As those boys stare into those pictures, he whispers behind them, hear them tell you their legacy. Do you hear it? Carpe, can you hear it? Carpe diem, seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. Well, I'm telling you, Christians have a better opportunity to do that than anybody because we have something to live for in this life and a hope in the next life. Could Peter be saying here, don't, don't, be, don't be business as usual in your Christian life. Don't just get by. Don't just exist. Make your salvation extraordinary as it's played out in this world. Well, that exhortation is there and we don't know which one of those or others that it could be. I have a sneaking suspicion that all of them could be at play. Why? Because the rest of scripture corroborates all of those things. And so that's what Peter does next. He puts some corroboration on the table and the corroboration that he puts on the table is that of none other than the apostle Paul. Look in the middle of verse 15, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
I, I don't know which one Peter was specifically thinking about when he wrote verse 15 at the beginning, but I know this, Paul talks about all those things. He talks about assurance of salvation. He talks about evangelism. He talks about extraordinary Christian living. And so basically what Peter does at this point is he says, you, you, you know that you, you need to be doing this. You need to count the patience of the Lord of salvation because Paul talked about that. But when he said that, it had a particular weight to it. I want you to look down at the end of verse 16. Look at what he says after he's talking about what the false teachers do with Paul's writings. He says, as they do the other, look at it, other scripture. Language of the New Testament, the word other means one of the same kind. Do you understand? Are you doing the math here? Do you understand what's happening? Peter is putting the writings of the apostle Paul on the same level as inspired scripture. I've often wondered, did Peter know he was writing a book that would wind up in the Bible? I, I don't know. Probably not. But what he did know is that Paul's writings were part of inspired scripture. And so basically at this point, he comes with an exhortation to believers and says, count the patience of our Lord of salvation and check your Bible because your Bible says this. Go read Paul's letters. You know them. You've heard them, he says. And we can find all three of those possibilities that I mentioned a while ago and more in Paul's writings. He talked about them all. So Peter corroborates his exhortation with the apostle Paul, but then He wants Christians to know that as they seize the day, they count this, the patience of the Lord as salvation to do these things, that they must be careful about the distortion of the false teachers. Middle of verse 16, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. (laughs) I'm glad that's in the Bible, aren't you? You, You're following this, right? It's the apostle Peter. He makes an exhortation to believers, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Then he corroborates it with scripture and says, remember Paul's epistles. And then then he says, I know that some things Paul wrote are hard to understand. I'm glad to know I'm not the only one that sometimes runs across things in the scriptures that he doesn't understand. We're in pretty good company. You ever felt like that? And have you ever felt like you're the only one? I don't understand that. Peter acknowledges that we're not going to know every detail about everything in Scripture. There are some things that are difficult to understand. But what he goes on to say here is, by implication, what you don't do is you don't twist that and make it say something you want it to say. And that's exactly what the false teachers were doing. Look, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Look, as they do the other scriptures. This is the way they treat all of scripture. What were they doing? They, They were... They were twisting scripture in language of the New Testament. This word translated twist here is the word that was used to describe the torture of a prisoner when they would, you know, tie him between two, uh, you know, whatever, you know, and, and stretch him and twist them. That's what he says. He says, he says, these guys do that with scripture. Why are they doing that? They're doing it to justify their lifestyle. 
And so we want to live. And chapter two talks about this with sexual perversion and licentiousness. We want to be greedy and be materialistic and, 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 and we want to be self-promoting and, 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 and that's the way we want to live our lives. So what do you have to do to justify that? Well, what you have to do is you have to, you have to look and you have to make scripture say something other than what it says so it doesn't contradict your lifestyle. And, and, and then you look at every doctrine that's related that like the second coming and you just, you, you kind of follow that backwards. Okay, if I want to do what I want to do and live like I want to live, then I've got to reject the idea of judgment. After all, God's a good God and he's not going to interrupt this order we have in the universe and I'm not as bad as somebody else. And, and, and so, so, so we start rejecting the idea of punishment and judgment. And if the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring judgment, then what do you have to do? You've got to reject that doctrine. You've got to say, well, Jesus isn't coming back. It's not going to happen. That's what was going on here. And as we've talked about that, if you just think about it, that's very similar to the spiritual conversations you have with unbelievers sometimes because that is exactly what people do. They want to justify doing their own thing. So they twist scripture or delete scripture or tear it pages out of the Bible or, 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 or manipulate it to make it say something it doesn't say. And in doing that, reject any doctrine that is related to that. Why? In order to justify their own way of life. And the choices that they've made. And that, that's what Peter says the false teachers do. And their hermeneutical gymnastics, notice, in, winds them up in hell. They twist to their own destruction. That's why, that's why, that's why we cherish this book. That's why we're grateful for Men like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and men who stood up and called the church back to the authority and the sufficiency of the word. It's why, as, as I've said to you before, that you need to be so very grateful that you have a pastor and a staff that, that calls you to a high view of scripture and treats this book rightly and, and is wise enough and honest enough to say sometimes, hey, we, we don't know everything about this word or this text or these verses that we do, but here's what we do know. Instead of twisting things in order to justify a lifestyle. So, so Peter says, be godly. He says, seize the day. And then finally he says, don't cave in. I, I'm fascinated uh, when I watch those human pyramids. Have you seen them? You know, people that stand on one another's shoulders. And, and I underscore the word watch because I have absolutely no desire to be a part of one of those things. In fact, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by them and I like to watch them is because there's a sinister side of me that just likes to see them fall. <laughs> so they put, you know, the stronger people and the heavy people uh, on the bottom and lighter people on the top so that they, they don't fall, that there's stability. Peter seemed to be concerned that some of his readers might cave in. They may fall. And so he gives them two exhortations not to cave in one, be on your guard. You therefore, beloved, in verse 17, knowing this beforehand, you know all of this, you know they twist the scriptures, you know what's coming in the nudge, knowing this, take care, he says. 
There's the be on guard. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The word lose is a word that is associated with apostasy in the New Testament. The idea of being carried away is buying into what the false teachers are saying and false ideologies and, 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 and the word that, that is, 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 is what the world says. He says, don't be carried away by that so that you come crashing down. You lose your stability. You cave in. Be on guard for this. But be on guard is not enough. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. So Peter says, fill that void with something. You be on guard not to be swayed so you lose your own stability. But you don't just be on guard and say no to that stuff. You, you, you put something in its place. And so he says, be on guard. But secondly, he says, grow in Christ. That's verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two aspects to that. Grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter's reminding us that grace isn't limited to our conversion and just the forgiveness of our sin. But grace is what is necessary for us to live the Christian life. Live out practical righteousness. Say no to false teaching that is out there and, and sometimes finds its way into the church. He's saying you need the grace of God, the power, the resource of God. Lean into that, he says. Keep depending upon it. Keep invoking that. Remember chapter one. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is yours. It, is, it has been put in your life. That grace is there. Peter says be proactive in not just thinking about it as a theological concept, but lean into it and pray for it and ask God to manifest it in your life and confess your utter dependence on it over and over. I need your grace, Lord. Help me with this. Peter says, grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's yours. But not only grow in grace, but grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? We've seen knowledge in this book, talked in the first sermon about it, showed you some words that are different words that are all translated by the word knowledge in our English text. Peter talked about full knowledge of God. He talked about experiential knowledge. Things we grow and we learn. And, and, and here at the end of this book, he comes back and he says, now, lean into that. Grow in that. To know him more and more and more every day. I want to ask you, do you know Jesus more today than you did when you first became a Christian? Do you know him more? Because you have lived with him and you have spent time with him and you have walked with him and he with you. My wife and I have been separated. I shouldn't use that word. That sounds bad. I, you probably need to clarify that in the first couple of services if I said that. My wife and I have been separated. We, we have not been together for two weeks now. My daughter had a baby and she had a C-section and she has another little boy. So my wife went down there and, and she's been there. She comes home today. I don't get home till Tuesday. So we have, we've been in different play for two weeks. We hadn't seen each other. Can I just tell you, I don't like that. I, I am a wreck when she, I mean, I, I messed up. I, I, on the way up here a minute ago, I just noticed I got a broken button on this suit right here. Yeah? She would have found that. She would have noticed that. I, I don't like, 34 years, we have continued to grow in our knowledge of one another to the point that when we're separated, we don't feel like a whole person. That's a good thing in marriage, I think. We're still growing in that. But you know, that's the way it ought to be with Christ. 
Not to be with Christ. We grow to know him more and more and more every day. There's never a time that we're not with him. That we're separated you know, from him. But we are to lean into knowing him more and more and more. And Peter says, this is what's going to help you to remain stable. And not cave in. And so he ends with a doxology, which is weird because none of the other letters in the New Testament end with doxologies. They usually end with instructions or greetings. Peter ends his with this attribution of praise to him, to who? To our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's just mentioned to him be the glory of When he comes, well, certainly, but Peter doesn't limit it to that. To to him be the glory both now and to the end of eternity. Remember the gospel. Know that Christ is glorified in the gospel. Remember it that you might live it and know that as you live it, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is being glorified in it. And that's going to be the order of the day in all of eternity. Peter worships him as we worship him. And so we say with Peter, amen. And we say with the apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. One day Luther, Martin Luther saw his children standing around a table and he noticed the twinkle in their eyes as they looked at a bowl of peaches on the table. They watched it with anticipation and a desire and a longing to reach and grab one. Luther said, this is a pattern of those who rejoice in the hope. Oh, he said, if only we would behold the last day with the same happy and fond expectation. We sit on the edge of our seats anticipating his return. He compels us as we wait to be godly, to take this opportunity and seize the day for extraordinary Christianity and not to cave in on the onslaught of falsehood. Let's pray together. Maybe some of you today, believers in Christ, the Spirit of God has called your attention, maybe has been calling your attention to some things that don't line up with practical righteousness. Maybe this is a day of repentance, renewal for you. You don't got to get saved over again, but we're called upon to confess and repent our sin that we might live out righteousness in this life. Maybe some of us are doing that right now. If it would be helpful for you to have someone pray for you, there'll be pastors down here at the front after I pray as we stand and sing in a moment and they're here for you and it might be helpful for some of you to drive a stake and a commitment to come and just ask one of them to pray for you and encourage you. There may be others today that are trusting Christ for the very first time. You realize today that you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus. I pray you're doing that, have done that maybe as we've worshiped together or maybe need some help from someone, some encouragement and somebody to answer some questions. When we stand and sing in a moment, I, I invite you to leave your seat and come and tell one of these pastors 
I'm becoming a Christian today. I'm following Jesus today. I'm trusting, however you want to say it, put it in your words. Let them encourage you and help you. Or maybe you need to ask them something, something about something I said, something you've read in the Bible, something you know or think you know about Christianity. But don't let anything keep you from pursuing Christ today. Lord, we yield ourselves to you right now. We ask your spirit to have free reign. Give us grace as believers to live holy lives as we sit on the edge of our seat. I pray you give courage and boldness to unbelievers right now to say yes to Jesus. So you, you have your way with us in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.